Hello, my name is Ashley Balin, and welcome to Baby Puppy, the parenting podcast for anyone raising a human or fur baby. Now, before I start getting angry emails from people in the dog community or parenting community about how different raising a dog is from a child, trust me, I know, I know, I'm not saying they're the same at all. But as a professional dog trainer and behavior consultant and a mother, there are a startling number of similarities. I have applied strategies from my dog training education and experience to parenting with great success and vice versa. From the early days with an infant or puppy, dealing with teething, crate or crib training, socialization and language acquisition, to nutrition, anxiety, coping mechanisms, independence, confidence building and more, it's impossible to deny a crossover. On each episode of this podcast, we'll explore a different topic and speak with a parenting expert to gain insight, strategies, and advice while comparing them to my experience working with dogs. Join me on this journey to raise confident, empathetic, respectful, happy, and healthy dogs and humans. On this episode, I'm joined by the wonderful Sarah Rosensweet. Sarah is a certified peaceful parenting coach and parenting advice columnist for the Globe and Mail newspaper. We discuss the importance of consistency and boundaries, the incredible benefits of raising children and dogs free of punishment, and the understanding that adjusting our child or dog's behavior relies heavily on our own introspection, reframing our perspective, and communicating with empathy. I was really inspired by my chat with Sarah, and I think you will be too. Enjoy! I just wanted to start by thanking you for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Okay, wonderful. So why don't why don't you start by just giving us a quick introduction, your name and what you do professionally? Sure. Um, my name is Sarah Rosensweet. I'm a peaceful parenting coach and also a, a parenting advice columnist for the Globe and Mail newspaper. I have uh, three kids. They are uh, 18 and 15. Those are my two boys. And I have a daughter who's 12. And uh, do you have any dogs? Oh, yes. <laughs> I forgot <laughs> I have a dog. I have a dog. Her name's Emmy Lou. She's an Australian Shepherd. And she is going to be eight in January. So your kids got to grow up with a dog for the most part. Yeah, we were, I think um, she was like our fourth baby. <laughs> we, <laughs> right. we realized that we, were, we, did, we weren't going to have a fourth child. So we got a dog instead. And um, I have to say it was as challenging sometimes. Having a puppy was uh, actually more challenging sometimes than having a baby. <laughs> I, I appreciate you saying that, actually. <laughs> I mean, that is the the premise of this podcast. Not oh necessarily gosh, that puppies are more challenging than babies, but that there's definitely an equal set of challenges. And, well, and some of them are similar and some are very different. Yeah. So I always would say to people, like, you can put a baby down in the middle of the floor and come back and five minutes and they haven't chewed everything in sight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like when you're getting a, a puppy, you're basically getting a toddler from day one. Oh my gosh. I think the first year, like I love her dearly, but the first year I was in tears so many times because she was just, she's, I mean, you know, Australian Shepherds are a really smart breed and, and very um, high energy. Oh my gosh. And she just, um, she would, you know, she'd cry in her crate. And when I had her in the kitchen with me, she'd be nipping at my feet and just, oh, it was very challenging. 
Yeah, it, it, it definitely is challenging. So I just want to go back to uh, what you had described as your job. So you are a peaceful parenting consultant. Mm-hmm. For, for people that are unfamiliar with that, what exactly is peaceful parenting? Um, so peaceful parenting is an approach that um, I'll, I can give you the three the sort of three big ideas of peaceful parenting, if you like. Sure. Um, the first big idea, and I think this probably comes in true with dogs as well, is that we really have to focus on our self-regulation, um, which doesn't mean that we never get upset with our kids or angry, but it just means that we calm ourselves before we respond to them and actually that we can respond rather than react. Um, right. So we sort of have the premise that nobody deserves to be yelled at ever, no matter what they do. Um, but again, it doesn't mean you never get upset. It just means you're you're um, always making an effort to um, calm yourself so you're not responding out of that place of upset. Um, the second big idea is that our um, we really focus on the relationship and connection and that that's the biggest thing we have to influence our children is our connection with them and our relationship with them. And then the third big idea is that um, we are using kind, firm limits without punishment. So sometimes kids need a lot of help to meet our expectations, um, and we provide that instead of using fear or um, threats as a way to get them to cooperate with us. And how does peaceful parenting differ at all from respectful parenting? I know that a lot of people are more familiar with the term respectful parenting, especially with the popularity of Janet Lansbury and Magda Gerber. So is is it just a different terminology for the same approach? It's not the same approach. Um, and I don't I actually not. I'm not I know a little bit about respectful parenting, but not a ton. But um what I do know, and I, you know, I'm a fan of Janet Lansbury's. I think she's great, but I, my sense of that approach is that it really came out of, I mean, Magda Gerber didn't even have any children. Um, right. It was a daycare approach. Like it was um, a, a pro- approach for caregivers of babies, but not, um, <clears throat> not necessarily parents of babies. So I love the respectful approach, but I do find and, I, and I'm not 100% sure this is why, but I think because it started as a daycare approach, I really feel like there's an emotional component that's missing from respectful parenting. Um, that there's, um, you know, it's just in peaceful parenting, I think we focus a lot more on welcoming feelings. And I think that, you know, in my mind, those are some big differences. Okay. And in your work, do you work directly with children or is your work more focused on guiding parents to help them reframe and change their approach? So I don't work with the children at all. Um, And a lot of parents are like, wait, what? Can I fix our kids? Well, well, from my line of work, it's the exact same, right? Because I have I have clients that contact me and say, you know, fix my dog or mm-hmm. fix my puppy. But you know, the the whole idea of you know at least my approach to dog training is to help the you know to help the dog owners reframe their approach and how to effectively communicate and how the same as you to to set boundaries and expectations and and various things within their household. So I think that a lot of people are thrown off when they find out that dog training is really human training yeah 100 percent. that's such a great overlap um most of the time i have when i have clients after like a session or two they say something like wait this doesn't really even have anything to do with my kids does it this is all about (laughs) me and it is it really is like you know when you change how you respond to your child um when you work on the things that you know are triggers for you um you'll find that miraculously i say that like a little, you know, tongue in cheek, your child starts behaving better. 
<laughs> right. So it's really more about adults learning how to kind of self-regulate and be more in tune with their emotions and their their reactivity. Yeah. And also, you know, getting better about, um, you know, setting limits. Like one thing that I see a lot is, you know, we give too many chances. Like we ask a child to do something or stop doing something and we ask them five or six times. And when they don't cooperate, then we, you know, lose our tempers. And I always say, ask once. And if you're not getting cooperation, what do you need to do to help them? Like, what kind of scaffolding do they need? Do they need more connection? Do they need you to make it a game? Like, you know, you don't ask five times. It's like that, that what is it, the definition of insanity <laughs> yeah. over and over again and expecting different results. Yeah, and it's it's actually really interesting to hear you say that because I am realizing as we speak how much of an overlap there is between the work that we do because, you know, I'll again, just, you know, in terms of basic obedience, I'll have a client that wants to teach their dog how to sit, for example. And they'll say, I have to say the word 20 times before they respond. And I always say, you know, say the word once. And then if they don't respond immediately to the action that you're hoping that they perform, then you have to guide them into the position that it is that you want them to be in. Mm -hmm. if, if you if you ask them to sit five times, and then you reward them the fifth time, then what they're learning is that you have to say it five times before they receive that. Yeah, that's totally true. I mean, I, I always say to clients, like you're, you're actually training your child to ignore you. If you, exactly. you know, if they can keep playing Lego for 10 more minutes while you keep shouting down from up, down, you know, shouting up from downstairs, it's time to go. Why wouldn't they keep playing Lego? Yeah, no, exactly. And obviously, you know, dogs are looking at things in an even more simplistic way. It's very black and white. If you say sit five times, and then you get a reward on the fifth time, then the command is actually sit, 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 sit. Right. <laughs> right. So so if you only say it four times, you haven't performed your part properly. Right. Totally. Yeah, so it, yeah, no, it, it's fascinating how, how much of a, a crossover there actually is. And so, so you coach parents through private consultations, workshops, speaking engagements, and you have an online community. I was wondering what the most common challenges that parents reach out to you about are. Um, you know, I think it's, I think it all stems from, I, I think the challenge sometimes looks different depending on your, you know, your life and your child and, and you, but I'd say that the common um, underlying cause is um, that they just are struggling, you know, to get to whether they're um, struggling because they've, you know, two working parents and the time between, you know, after daycare pickup and bedtime is short and they're not, you know, it's, it's feeling like a, a struggle or whether, you know, maybe you've got a stay at home parent, but <clears throat> they're feeling completely burnt out and overwhelmed by the needs of little kids. Um, but it's basically just helping them to identify where the struggle is and giving them some tools that they can use to make things feel easier. And are there, are, you know, do, are there certain struggles that you see are most common or is it really just a matter of uh, trying to understand how to effectively communicate with your children? Um, I mean, the struggles that are common, you know, it depends on the kid really, but like strong-willed kids, how do you get them to cooperate with you? That's one big one. Um, you know, when sometimes you've got kids who, um, you know, aren't feeling connected to you for one way or another. Yeah, I, I mean, ah, it's hard to be really um, gen like every like it's hard there, to generalize. Yeah, I mean, there are things that are really common, and I think that basically, if you looked at anything, do you do you have kids? I do. Yeah, I have, how old are your yeah. Kids? 
I, I have one son. He's only two. Okay. So if you looked at like what you're struggling with, chances are other people are struggling with the same <laughs> right. thing. <laughs> and sometimes it's just that. Like it's sometimes like people just feel really, they feel glad to know that they're not alone. They're not the only one who's struggling, you know? It, it's true. I mean, I think that the the stigma about discussing the struggles that you're having in your home is starting to lift a little bit with social media. But I, I know that, you know, even at some of the parenting groups that I had gone to with my son just a couple of years ago, everyone talked about all of the wonderful things that they're experiencing, but they were very, you know, shy to, to talk about their struggles because they, I guess they were scared of being judged by other people. Well, what I find is that, um, that there's a story that we tell your, tell ourselves that being a good parent means that your child's happy most of the time and that they uh, cooperate with you and do what you ask them to do. And so if you find that your child's unhappy sometimes, and like, to be honest, I think about 95% of the time, our, our, our agenda is in opposition to our child's agenda. So, you know, they want to stay up. We want them to go to bed. They want to stay home. We want them to go to daycare. You know, they want to keep playing. We want them to come and eat. Like there's, you know, so much of the day we've got that opposition. So we're going to have kids who are, you know, without using some of the strategies that I recommend, you have kids that are unhappy a lot of the time. Um, So if you're coming up against that, that your idea of being a good parent is happy children who listen to you and do what you say, then there's going to be some shame involved, right? Yeah, and I guess it's also about the the definition of what happiness is, is that I, I, you know, I find you obviously have way more experience than I do working with parents. But my my experience is that obviously parents want their children to be happy, but they also don't want their children to have strong emotions. Mm hmm. So it's, it, you know, it's this really interesting sort of polarization that they want them to feel a strong emotion on one end, but then try to resist the strong emotion on the other end. Yeah, totally. Well, and you, and if you, the, the way emotion works is if you're tamping down the difficult emotions, you automatically are going to be tamping down the, the good emotions, right? Because you can't pick and choose um, stuffing feelings is stuffing feelings. So we really, we want to have that range of you know, being able to feel the really good feelings, we also have to feel the more challenging feelings. Um, but we weren't raised that way, most of us. We weren't raised in the welcoming, you know, one of our sort of sayings in peaceful parenting is welcome all feelings. And most of us were raised with the, you know, stop crying, it's only a cookie, or okay, okay, I'll give you the cookie, um, just stop crying, right? So there wasn't that, you know, in peaceful parenting, what we say is, oh my goodness, you want the cookie so much. I know it's so disappointing that I won't let you have another cookie. You love cookies, right? And you just, you let the child have the feelings about right. not You're not trying to immediately like stamp on and dismiss the feeling. Exactly. And you're not trying to fix it either. You're not saying, okay, okay, you're so upset. I'll give you the cookie. So um, in both of those urges to either tell the child to stop feeling that way or to fix it so they'll stop feeling that way. They both come from a really uncomfortableness with emotion. So, you know, that's one thing that I work at every single client I work with, we touch, we touch on that because that's always an issue because of how we were raised. So you must feel like a, a psychiatrist a lot of the time yeah. when you're doing work. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because so I, I, guess, I guess in in having these conversations with telling people that they have to learn how to access their emotion and self-regulation and you know how to respond and reframe, then you probably end up having adults dealing with a lot of sort of, you know, emotional repression. Absolutely. And that's kind of my big secret. 
<laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't put on my website, like, come and work through your emotional triggers with me. It's like, get your kids to cooperate. But, you know, right. but really what it, what it, and, you know, the, obviously I have a lot of clients I don't do that deeper work with, but, um, you know, sometimes we get into that because that's what they need to be the parent that they want to be. They need to work on like, why is it so uncomfortable for me when my child's crying? Um, what, you know, why do I have these urges to make them stop crying and, and to get back to what, where we started down this path with it's, um, um, it's often, oh, no, I just forget what it was. <laughs> I, had, I had a really great tie back and now I forget what it was. Um, it's looking, oh yeah, it's looking at what does it mean to you? What's the story you tell yourself of being a good parent? And if it's that your child's never unhappy, then there is going to be that shame. Like I must not be a good parent if my child's unhappy sometimes. And then when we feel like we're not a good parent, we feel like we're not a good person. And so I think that's why um, people are hesitant to talk about it in parenting groups because they want to feel like a good parent. They want to feel like a good person. And so they feel like if they're struggling, there's something wrong with them, right? Right. And they're also, you know, admitting their own vulnerability. And that's not necessarily something you want to discuss with a group of people that you don't know very well. Yeah. Because as you said, and I think that's really poignant, is that if your child is, you know, quote unquote, misbehaving, then it's a reflection of your parenting. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, to admit that means that not only do you admit that you're a bad parent, but it, that you don't have a strong connection with your child, that you're unable to communicate with them effectively, and that you're not necessarily building the relationship you had seen prior to your child being born. Right. And I just want to clarify that um, your child's behavior is not a reflection of your worth as a person. Um, it might be reflective of some work that you need to do, but even if you're like, you know, the quote unquote best parent in the world, you're still going to have kids that are unhappy with you a lot of the time. Like I, I would say to my kids when they were little, it would be so much easier for me to say yes to this, you know, to the more TV or more sugar or whatever. Um, but I love you enough to say no. And I know right. you're really unhappy. That's really, this. that's really beautiful. That's a really nice way of looking at it, actually. Well, it helped. I think it helped them. I think it helped them to see, um, you know, mom isn't just like being mean here, but she's looking out for us. So you, you know, you've mentioned a few times that, you know, your approach, your peaceful parenting approach relies heavily on being confident in the boundaries that you're, you're choosing and setting. Mm -hmm. So, so what happens in a household where the adults that are involved in a child's life don't necessarily agree on those boundaries? Um, well, I think sometimes what happens is that you have one parent who's naturally a little bit more strict and another parent that's sort of naturally a little bit more soft. And unless you have good communication about sort of what you want for your child in terms of the limits, like, you know, how much TV, how much sugar, when do they go to bed, like whatever, um, parents can start to overcompensate for each other. Like, you know, parent, the softer parent sees the stricter parent being strict, so then gets more soft. And then the stricter parent has to get more, feels like they have to get more strict to compensate for the other parent. And before you know it, they're so far away from where they actually want to be. Um, because they're actually just overcompensating. Um, so I think that's a good thing to keep in mind. And I think it's also okay that both parents, you know, that they're not exactly the same as each other. I think you, you need to be in the same book in general, but you don't have to be on the exact same page all the time. Um, and I know for sure that they're, you know, even at 
the older ages that my kids are, there's some things that they'll ask me for and some things they'll have <laughs> right. to for, right? Well, and I guess that kids are you know, intuitive enough that they can learn that they'll have different relationships with different adults in their life. Yes, that's so true. And I think, you know, if your partner, um, and I'm just going to be really generalizing here, but what I find is that generally the mom is the one that finds peaceful parenting and wants to get on board with it. And the dad is um, a little bit afraid of using that sort of not conventional approach. And they feel they still they still buy into the idea that you have to make your child feel bad to teach them a lesson, which is really the, the opposite of what we think in peaceful parenting is that you you don't have to make people feel bad to teach them something. And I imagine that's sort of what you do with your dog training too, right? Like it's not about cowing and shaming somebody into submission. It's about supporting them to make the right choice. Um, but what happens sometimes I think is that the mom is easier to adapt that um, idea and then you get into this, um, the mom telling the dad, you're doing it wrong. And then the dad feeling attacked and whatever. So what I always say is it's a pull, not a push. So do the parenting ideas that you want to do. And often what I'm seeing over the years that I've been doing this is that it can take maybe a year for dad to say, oh, well, I'm really noticing that you're getting more cooperation from the kids and your relationship with them is better. And I want to know about this too, right? Yeah. And actually I, I do have a, you know, very similar experience with my clients because, you know, I always joke about the fact that when I'm working with a single person, then the results that you get with your dog are usually you know far faster than they are when you're working with a couple or when you're working with a family that has multiple children, because every child and every person that's within the household ends up retaining the information differently, but also approaching their, their dog differently. Mm-hmm. So it ends up sending a lot of confusing signals and similarly to children the dog ends up learning how they should behave with each person and they form a a different relationship with each one of those people Mm -hmm. and uh yeah and you know and in terms of you talking about you know the difference between sort of a non-punitive approach versus a punitive report approach in the dog training world Obviously, there's many different approaches to training, but the two, you know, I would say, like most adopted ones are this force-free, non-punitive, positive reinforcement approach. And then there's the other approach, which they call balanced, which essentially means that you're pulling from all four of the learning theory quadrants. So you're using positive and negative reinforcement as well as positive and negative punishment. And I find a lot of the time, since that's the most traditional form of dog training, that many of my clients come to me having used all of these fear tactics and they've lost their relationship with their dog entirely. And they're trying to find a way to rebuild that so that they can form a stronger bond that's based on trust and respect and empathy. I love it. That's exactly what we find, too. You know, when you're the first thing you start with is always connection. Um, because you're, as I said, in the beginning, when I was describing peaceful parenting, that's the biggest influence you have over your child is your relationship. Um, my, my son, who's 18, um, a few years ago, he said to me, mom, he said, so many of my friends don't call their parents and tell them where they are and they ignore their texts. And sometimes they don't even go home at night. And he said, um, he said, you're lucky that I care what you and dad think. Um, which that's really sweet. Yeah. And to me, that's like the key to parenting teenagers, especially is like having teenagers who care what you think is a huge, huge price, like 90% of it, right? It's 90% of the game. 
Um, but going right. I mean, I remember being a teenager and, you know, I did have a very close relationship with my parents and I did, you know, trust them and respect them. But I always heard the story from many of my friends that the reason that they made choices was because they were scared that they were going to get punished by their parents or that they were scared they were going to disappoint their parents. And it was never... It was it was all all the all choices were made based in fear. And yeah. it ended up creating a culture within their household of constantly wanting to hide things and not feel that you were able to, you know, really share anything that was happening in your life. Totally. And then also like when you know, what can you get away with when you don't think they're gonna find out? Exactly. But it becomes a yeah, it becomes an environment of hiding. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, all, I just wanted to continue riffing on, on this just a little bit. A, a comment I often hear in the dog training world is that this force-free, non-punitive and, and positive reinforcement-based training only works with certain breeds or temperaments or personalities of dogs. Do you ever get feedback from parents that your peaceful parenting approach is only successful with certain temperaments or personalities of children? No. And, and honestly... I think that the more challenging the child, the the more or more challenging the child's behavior, um, the more important it is to use this approach. Um, because, you know, especially when you've got, you know, say a strong-willed kid, they're going to be, they, you know, the more you try to break their spirit, the more defiant they'll become. Or you could get like a, a actually a child with a broken spirit who's going to harden their heart to you. Um, so that, you know, I think that if you have a child who's quote unquote easier or like a more mild temperament, you know, they're just going to be more, um, well, I don't know, easier. And those aren't the parents that I generally work with. I generally work with the parents who have kids who are a little bit more challenging. And so I think that the approach works for everybody, but is especially important for kids who are more challenging. Right. So another thing I wanted to ask you about is, you know, dog training is based heavily in positive reinforcement and reward. And we teach dogs to perform a specific action or behavior in response to verbal cues, hand signals, or environmental cues by providing them access to a motivator, such as a treat or a toy or affection or praise. And then they create that positive association with certain behaviors and get excited to repeat them. Mm -hmm. So I, I know that in peaceful parenting, you don't promote any sort of rewards-based parenting, such as treats or stickers or prizes mm -hmm. to motivate kids. And can I just ask you, you know, why that isn't encouraged? And for parents that aren't familiar with, you know, with the peaceful parenting approach, how do they try to motivate their kids to engage in certain behaviors without motivators if their kids are really resistant to doing those things? Right. So it, that is an interesting uh, diversion in, you know, raising dogs and raising humans. And um, it's actually quite funny because I was talking to my mentor who I trained with, Dr. Laura Markham, who's um, a wonderful, wonderful parenting expert. And um, I said, I think, you know, I've trained my, or I've trained, I've raised my kids and my dog <laughs> the same way. And I have three kids that listen to me and a dog who doesn't like right. use your services, Ashley. But, um, my dog is a selective listener. Um, and she laughed and she said, of course, she said, dogs don't have much of a prefrontal cortex. So, you know, you've raised your children to want to um, do the right thing due to Into reason. Yeah. Intrinsic motivation. Right. Like they it's not. And, and from what I understand about dogs is that it's habit based, like do this, get that, right? Yes. It's not that they're choosing to 
come when they're called. It's that you just um, train them that that's what you do when you're when you're called. Well, because the, the majority of dog training is asking dogs to do things that are completely unnatural to them, to their species, mm-hmm. right? You know, like, why would a dog come running to you if they're chasing a squirrel? Or, you know, why would they drop a yummy piece of food that they found on the ground when they want to eat it? Yeah, both of or... them my dog completely. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or, you know, why would they sit on, on command? Their dogs rarely sit in any sort of position. They're usually either standing, walking, or sleeping yeah you know all all these types of things that we expect of them are very performative and my dog will sit i'm just gonna say that one (laughs) well so (laughs) so you're not doing too bad you know i think we i i always joke because i had a you know four-year-old seven-year-old and 10-year-old when we got her um i was pretty busy with the kids and and my joke is that we got our dog to good enough which is great like she's good with children she's good with other dogs She's a sweet, sweet girl, um, but she definitely does not <laughs> doesn't come if she's in the middle of, you know, eating something amazing that she found in the bushes. She she just totally ignores me. Right. So you've <laughs> so you've raised a well-behaved dog instead of a well-trained. Dog. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very nice way of putting it. Um, <laughs> yeah. But in terms of the question of why we don't use rewards and um, praise and treats to get kids to do the right thing, um, it, because really those things teach children um, what's in it for me. Um, they don't teach children to do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. It teaches them. And it's the same thing with punishment, right? It's the flip side of rewards is, um, well, I shouldn't hit my brother because then I'll get a timeout or I should do the dishwasher because then I'll get a dollar. It's about what's in it for me. Um, what we really want to raise kids to do is to think and feel um, how do my actions affect another person? So, I don't want to hit my brother because that'll hurt my brother and I and I really care about him or I want to do the dishwasher because my family relies on me as part of the family team and helping the family is really important and makes me feel good. Um, so, you know, and, and when you take that further down the road in terms of doing things because of how they'll affect you, whether it's positive or negative, um, that really m- makes it so you have to wonder like, well, what will that person do when no one's looking? And I really take that to like a global level. And when you look at like, you know, the economic collapse of 2008, it was like all these people who are just in it for themselves and how much money they could make, right? Um, not thinking about the the bigger like global community of how do my actions affect <clears throat> other people? So I think it's not just looking at this at like the micro family level, but like what kind of humans do we want to raise? Like, will they do the right thing because it's the right thing to do well, they only do the right thing if they're going to get a reward for it or if they're doing it to avoid getting, you know, a punishment. Right. And what if, you know, what if you're talking about situations that don't involve other people? So it's it's not really a matter of, you know, empathy being involved in wanting to to create this long-term understanding of how you relate to others in the world. But what if it's something that, you know, really as far as children concerned, don't have any sort of consequence, like something like toilet training. Mm-hmm. So where they're not motivated to go and sit on a toilet yeah. whatsoever. They couldn't care less if they use their diaper. No one's getting hurt if they use their diaper. Yeah. So th- I guess that's, you know, that's one specific example where parents often do rely on rewards like a sticker or an M&M or something every time they, they go yeah. to the bathroom. So generally that's, um, 
so well i want to say two things about that first of all if you if you wait until a child's ready you generally don't have to use those things because they want to use the toilet so they have that intrinsic motivation um most of the time waiting until they're um have the desire themselves you don't need to use the sticker chart or the m m's or whatever um if you do for some reason i know that there's some like you know, daycares that put, you know, they have to be out of diapers before they can come into the daycare room. Or I don't know if you have some reason why you can't wait for the child to be ready on their own. Um, that is one of our um, exceptions in peaceful parenting in terms of using like a sticker chart or a reward system. And the reason why we make an exception for toilet training is that it's time limited, right? Like it's not like you're going to continue to have to give your child an M and M every time <laughs> right. the toilet. So I, I would hope not. <laughs> no, no. If you do, then that's your problem. I think. Um, but because it's time limited and it's um, something that it's difficult for the. And, and again, I want to say that I believe you should wait until the child does see the intrinsic motivation to use the toilet. But if you can't and they don't see it, fine. Get make a sticker chart and give them a sticker every time they use the toilet. Um, because that's not going to be going forward into life. Right. Because they relate it specifically to the task that they're doing. Yeah. Which is learning, toilet learning. Right. Okay. And so, you know, as we're having, <laughs> as we're having this conversation, I'm, I'm learning that there are a number of, you know, similarities between the work that we do and obviously some key differences. You know, some of, some of the, the big similarities to me is that you, you know, you have to raise the dog you have and take their energy and temperament and personality and many factors into consideration when setting boundaries and making decisions for them. Uh, you have to understand that punishment is a bad way to influence positive behavior. You also have to be respectful and empathetic while engaging or communicating or, or handling your dog. But a big one for me is that you have to learn to ignore the comments and looks from judgmental friends or family or neighbors if you're making choices that might sound or look different than the way that they're choosing to train or care for their dogs. Absolutely. And, um, you know, that's something I wanted to, I guess, get your opinion on is that peaceful parenting still isn't the norm in a lot of communities, at least from, you know, my experience and anecdotally. And I was wondering when other parents are yelling at their kids or forcing them to share or helicopter parenting or asking your child to perform certain actions, like, how do you respond to other parents in social situations without feeling ostracized or judged by them? Well, I don't know if you can necessarily not feel ostracized or judged. You might. <laughs> um, but then you also have to ask or how do you yourself, feel comfortable, like protecting right. the approach that you've chosen for your child? Yeah. So I think, first of all, um, you you think you have to think about, well, are these the people I want to surround myself with if they're really going to be truly judgmental about my choices? Um, second of all, um, you know, I didn't go around telling uh, the other parents they were doing it wrong, um, even when I disagreed. So I think that's another way that it's like a pull, not a push. Um, third, I think you ask yourself, where's my loyalty? Like, do I care more about what these people think or about my child? And I think that's a huge one because sometimes we find ourselves like in public and our kids melting down and everyone's staring and you start to feel like embarrassed, right? You start to feel embarrassed. So what do they think of me? then you can kind of back up and like, well, wait, why do I care what they think of me? Like, I care more about what my child thinks of me in this moment and how I'm going to respond to my child. So I think that's a big one to just remind yourself, where's my loyalty? Um, is it to my child or is it to the strangers at the mall? 
Um, yeah, no, I, I really like where's my loyalty because I find when I'm working with <clears throat> clients that, you know, I'm giving them specific methods that have long-term, you know, goals and long-term success. And, you know, they don't have immediate results necessarily the first day that you start implementing them because you're looking to create this, you know, long-term relationship. Mm-hmm. And, unfortunately with a lot of punitive methods there are results immediately because the dog immediately shuts down Mm -hmm. so when they are outside in public and they're following you know the guidance that I've provided for them they often experience that people are walking by saying why don't you just tell him no why don't you just scream at him why don't you just you know give him a quick collar grab or why don't you put him on the floor and show him who's boss oh god and you know they come to me saying i know that's not the right approach but how can i focus on the on the work that i'm trying to do when i have people making comments to me and making me feel shamed constantly well i'll give you a line that i give my parents that i work with which is um instead of you know arguing with those people who are saying why don't you do this just say um thank you for your input i'll take that into consideration (laughs) right right like you can't nobody can argue back against you when you say that but it's also just a myob sort of thing right yeah no it, no it, it's very true and i think that well I, I was gonna say that i think that people are you know harder on dogs because for some reason we've created a culture where it's still more acceptable to be physical with our animals than it is with children mm-hmm. I, I, i'm not sure why we haven't evolved <laughs> evolved in that way but uh, I, I mean and of course that's a much bigger conversation about animal cruelty laws but i i well, it, no, it's, but it, it, it's it's not i don't know if it's as far off as you think because there's still, I think most states still don't have any sort of laws against um, like corporal punishment for children. And it's still, I think I saw a statistic, this was maybe 10 years old, but I'm sure not that much has changed in 10 years, that 70 to 75% of Americans spank their children. Wow. I didn't realize the numbers were still that high. Yeah. You know, I don't know anyone in, in, in my world that is, you know, that spanks their children or is physical with their children at all. But I do know a lot of people in my world that still think it's okay to be physical with their dogs when they're not behaving. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, those, those statistics are astonishing. Yeah, no, it's really sad. So there's one, there's one thing I want to do with you that I thought would be a little fun. Uh, I got an email from one of my clients about their dog, and I'm curious to know how you would approach this scenario and what advice you would give from a peaceful parenting perspective if it were parents and a child instead of a dog. Okay. Okay. So here's the email. Hi, Ashley. Thanks so much for your perspective and advice regarding Rosie's anxiety and insecurity. We plan on implementing your strategies ASAP, but before getting started, I do have one more question. Rosie absolutely loves playing with her ball and gets out a lot of her pent-up energy and stress through running and playing fetch. But as you know, we live in a condo, so don't have a backyard to throw the ball, so we rely on local dog parks and empty fields to play with her. The problem is that if another dog or person tries to touch her or approach her while she's playing with the ball, she becomes very agitated and in some situations even aggressive. She's never hurt anyone, but she growls or shows her teeth and I'm scared it will escalate. How do we allow her to play with her ball, get out that pent up energy and stress and continue running while keeping other dogs and people safe? So my question to you is, if you were working with parents that had a young child with tons of energy that loved a specific toy that could only be played with in public spaces, mm-hmm. um, but when another child approached to play with them, the child became violent or aggressive, what advice would you give those parents? 
Um, well, I'd say that absolutely they have to stay really close so that they can intervene if the other, you know, if um, their child started to get aggressive with another child. Um, so preventive is, I think, my would be my first strategy. Um, and then second, you, ha you have to remember, and I often, it's funny because I often talk about um, when I tell parents that aggression comes from fear, I often say, you know, when you think of a dog that's being aggressive, it's because they're afraid. Um, and most people, are, they kind of get it when you can, when I use the dog example. Um, and so I would say, how can you soothe your child um, and let them know like, oh my goodness, you are feeling so worried that so-and-so is going to take your ball. It's okay. I'm here. You're, you know, you're safe. You're not going to, no one's going to take your ball away. So I don't know how you would translate that to a dog, but I guess I would, you know. Well, it's a, it's actually very similar okay. <laughs> <laughs> because, the, you know, at, similarly to what you just said, there are training approaches and then there are management solutions, right? So from a management perspective, I would, you know, say to choose times of the day where you're less likely to run into anyone, go to locations that are less busy and populated, even if it means having to go out of the way a little bit. Mm -hmm. And while playing with the ball, if you see people or dogs entering the space, I would either stay really close or stop the game and put the ball away until mm -hmm. those, until they left or move to another section of the park that's empty. And I would also see if friends or family had large backyards that we could borrow or look into renting a dog-friendly space a couple times a week so that the dog didn't feel stressed while mm -hmm. they were playing with that toy. Mm-hmm. But those are all management solutions, yes, right? Yes, the preventive, from, the preventive piece. It, exactly. And then from a training perspective, you know, we already know that Rosie, in this case, is an anxious and fearful and insecure dog. So we also have to implement confidence building and counter conditioning strategies so she doesn't feel as threatened by other people and dogs. Yeah. And there are also, you know, specific <clears throat> training games and exercises that you can play daily at home to build a reliable leave it or drop it command or condition your dog to believe that when people or dogs approach while they're playing with their favorite things, that it's actually beneficial to them as opposed to punitive. Mm -hmm. So, you know, although it's a, it's a, you know, it is a different approach. It, it's very similar to what you answered. Yeah, totally. That's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, you know, I guess my, my last question is if someone listening to this conversation is interested in following more of a peaceful parenting approach, they're realizing that maybe some of the choices they're making are a little punitive or based in fear. Do you have like a beginner's 101 piece of advice to get them to started on the right path? Um. Yeah, I think that to remember, I mean, it really starts with a mindset shift and to remember that children and all people and all dogs, I think, are doing the best they can and that their natural state, I mean, I don't know about dogs, but I imagine it's the same. Their natural state is to feel close and connected and to be quote unquote good. And if right. there's um, something, you know, if, if there's some something going on where they are being challenging, um, there's a reason for it, right? So to really just to keep your own um, patience and compassion and so you can reliably deal with whatever's happening to remember they're doing the best they can. I think that's a big part. And I also think that um, what I said earlier was that we don't need to feel bad to learn something. Um, you know, you don't need to make a child feel bad to learn something. You don't need, you know, say you make a mistake at work. You don't need your boss to scream at you and dock your pay to help you do better the next time. In fact, that would probably have the opposite effect. So um, I think really just starting with that mindset shift and then starting to look at 
the different areas of um, of you know where you where you want to make some changes, starting with connection, as I mentioned, um, and really looking at your own self regulation. And is there anything, you know, from our conversation, from my dog training perspective that you have learned that you think that you could apply to parent coaching? Um, well, I certainly can apply it to my dog. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think she's too old to learn? Is it true? That no, that's, that's, that is a myth. That is a myth. Dogs are never too old to learn. <laughs> Um, and it turns I, to- I have clients that rescue dogs that are 12, 13, 14 years old, and they start training them as if they're a puppy and they still learn everything they need to learn. Okay, good. Well, that makes me feel better. Um, in terms of what I can learn from our conversation for parent coaching, I guess that, you know, we're all like all of us creatures are not that much different from each other. And I think that's a really beautiful thing to remember. Yeah, I think so too. I think that, yeah, and it's an important lesson, I think, to teach our children as well, is that, you know, all all of the, you know, animals that, that we coexist with are, you know, equally valuable. Mm-hmm. We, you know, obviously are in this mindset that for some reason, human beings are at the top of this hierarchy. And I think that, you know, that arrogance is leading to a lot of the world's problems right now. It is, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me today. I really, really appreciate it. That was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. <laughs> okay, great. And can you just tell me how people can find you? Sure. Um, my website is Um, I've got a lot of free resources on um, my website. Uh, one that I know a lot of parents who are just starting out on this journey find really helpful is I have a free e-course called How to Stop Yelling at Your Kids. Um, so you can find that on my website and that's a great place to start. As I mentioned, maybe we start with self-regulation. <clears throat> I also have a free, uh, parenting Facebook group, which is called peaceful parenting with Sarah Rosensweet. And it's a really great community of, uh, other like-minded parents who are really, really supportive and non-judgmental of each other. So it's a, it's a wonderful place to be. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ashley. Have a great day. You too. Bye. Thanks for listening. Are you looking to add a dog to your family? For a limited time only, listeners of Baby Puppy will receive 10% off our unique mutt-making package. Let us help you find the right breed, energy level, and temperament for your household based on your experience, expectations, routine, and personality. We always say there's no such thing as the perfect dog, but there is definitely a perfect dog for you. If you have a question you'd like answered on the show, child or dog related, email info at meetyourmutt.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at meetyourmutt or visit the website at www.meetyourmutt.com. Remember, this podcast is just a baby or puppy. And as they say, it takes a village. So please rate and review. Happy parenting. Baby Puppy is hosted, recorded, and produced by me, Ashley Balin, production assistance by Koji Nagata, and theme song by Pink Distortion Music.